Every day, we rise, challenging ourselves to work for what we believe in. At U.S. Border Patrol, protecting our borders is more than a job. It's a calling. Agents answer the call, working together to keep our country and communities safe. If you are ready for a new mission, join U.S. Border Patrol and go beyond. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. The views expressed in the following program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of Saga 960 AM or its management. Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. I've been really interested in companies that have, uh, number one, helped our uh, our response to COVID-19, but also um, business people that have been able to adjust uh, and, uh, and 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 pivot uh, during uh, COVID-19 uh, to uh, to launch new business uh, strategies uh, and or to uh, address some of the issues with COVID-19. And so I want to introduce you to uh, tonight, Guillaume Levedieu, who is the President and Global Chief Operating Officer for Medicom Inc. Uh, and they've got a multi-year agreement with Ottawa to supply surgical masks. They retrofitted an existing structure to house 15 different production lines. Uh, they've got procurement and ventilation systems and new conveyor belts, and they've installed mask machines with 150 million capacity, a compressor packaging, and a, a central pallet, uh, palletizer. So it sounds like they've done a lot. Mr. Uh, Guillaume uh, Lavadieu, welcome to our show. How are you tonight, sir? I'm very good. Thank you for having me tonight, Brian. My pleasure. So um, sounds like you did a lot in a fairly short period of time. Tell me how you accomplished all that, if you could. So uh, Medicom has been in business in the personal protection equipment since 1988. So it's not the first uh, sanitary crisis that we, we live through. We've been through SARS, H1N1, Ebola. This one is very, really, really different from the other ones in terms of the size and, and the speed and, and, and the reach. So when we, when we saw that um, the, the, the COVID uh, pandemic was developing, uh, we ramped up into production in our existing factories. We have factories, pre-existing factories in France, China, Taiwan, the US. But we also uh, discovered that uh, governments were looking for local production to, to be able to be self-sustainable or have supply chain sovereignty as the Prime Minister of Canada said. So we entered into discussion with several governments, one of them being the federal government in Canada. And we came to an agreement to, to enter into a long-term agreement in exchange of which we have been able to open a factory in Montreal in a record time. So in three months, we were up and running, which is a quite an accomplishment for, for the team. Excellent. Congratulations. Um, and uh, the federal government multi-year contract, uh, I presume, was critical to get the financing such that you could uh, construct the plant? So it's the, the, the critical part of this, this contract is uh, to ensure that this is not a one-time PO order or, or activity but it's a long-term sustainable business. Uh, I'll be very open with you. Manufacturing in Canada is more expensive than China. It is. So if you don't have a long-term vision from the government, uh, it's very difficult to be, to, to, to be and to stay competitive and to stay on business in, in, in a Western country. So many governments have entered into long-term agreement to ensure that there is long-term uh, supply capability. Uh, and that's the case for the federal government. Now, obviously when... Uh soon to be uh, former President Trump, closes down the U.S.-Canadian border for the importation of masks. Uh, and other people uh, became very concerned about masks from China and other places. That kind of a strategy makes a lot of sense. But do you think that four or five years from now, new, more fiscally uh, um, conservative, uh, cut, um, cutting-oriented, uh, budget-oriented uh, governments will keep those types of contracts in place? So this is a 10-year contract. So there is some longevity to the, to the contract. And um, I hope that uh, some, mistakes, some mistakes which were made after H1N1 in several countries, uh, after they decided to build a strategic uh, inventory, just in case a new pandemic would arrive, and that this inventory were not replenished as they were used and they disappeared, I hope this mistake will not repeat again today. After um, SARS, uh, I'm not sure about in Quebec, but in Ontario, there was a judicial 
uh, commission that uh, evaluated what went wrong with SARS. And one of their recommendations was that uh, we kept this uh, reserve amount of uh, personal protective equipment. And, uh, and, and at that time, uh, one of the big issues was long-term care. Uh, and they wanted to have this personal protective equipment for long-term care. Um, I had a couple of union leaders on uh, from the long-term care facilities uh, just a couple months ago. And they said that, that uh, it was not replenished that uh, reserve uh, inventory, um, that even the ventilators and respirators were uh, not working, uh, they, they hadn't been maintained at all. And that it was as if we had not learned anything from SARS or the judicial commission that was, uh, was convened to understand what went wrong and what we needed to do right. And we just didn't listen to it. So that's what I'm saying, I hope, People will learn from this crisis and will remember and, and will not take shortcuts in the coming years. But do you believe that, that that's going to happen? It obviously didn't happen after H1N1. It didn't happen after SARS. Why is this one going to be different? So maybe the fact that there is a long-term agreement in terms of money. I'm talking about face masks and respirators that I, I know of. The fact that there is a long-term agreement, the fact that there is local manufacturing now in Canada, especially in Quebec, it's probably a bit different from what happened in the past. Now, only future will tell. Well, I'm glad that uh, you've got that confidence and, and I'm hoping that you're, uh, that you're right in that regard. So um, how, how did you get this plant up within three months and, and how big is it? I, I heard 60,000 square feet, that's a fairly sizable plant. It's uh, slightly above 60,000 square feet. It, has, it had initially 15 machines. We just bought 11 more machines. So there will be 26 machines in, in this factory. Uh, we're 100 people today. Uh, we're still recruiting and to, to grow the, the headcount. Uh, we're increasing capacity. Um, it, one of the things the crisis uh, revealed is that uh, you can't improvise yourself as a mask manufacturer. A lot of people tried. A lot of people who had no experience in masks tried and, and failed. It's either not being able to produce or delivering products which were not uh, meeting the, the regulatory requirements. Um, it's not the first art factory to produce masks for medical. We, we had uh, five factories before. Uh, and, and we opened several factories in, in the span of, let's say, six months. In the UK, in Singapore, Hong Kong, France, US, Montreal. So it's, it's a fact that we have a deep network in terms of machine supply, uh, raw material supply. We know how to operate. That, that made this uh, uh, possible. Now, is it easy to run, to operate a factory in three months? No, it's not. But uh, we had amazing dedicated team with a sense of purpose of we're here to protect people in Canada, in Quebec. And, and they were very proud to work extended hours to, to deliver that. We're chatting tonight with uh, the president and global chief operating officer of Medicom Inc., uh, who is a manufacturer of masks. Uh, we're going to take a break uh, and get back with uh, William Lavigneux in just a minute. Stay with us. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back to the Brian Crumby Radio Hour, Saga 960. Uh, I've been very interested in trying to figure out how different business people, different companies have been able to adjust to the realities of COVID-19, both from a uh, pivoting their business um, and, um, and, and preparing the types of materials that we need. And uh, Guillaume Levit, Le, I pronounce it, Guillaume Levidieu, who is the president and global chief operating officer of Medicom uh, Inc. is with us tonight. Um, Mr. Levidieu, let me uh, ask you, uh, you know, building plants not only in Canada, but in several other countries must have had a fairly significant financial commitment. How did you, uh, how did you um, raise the money to, to, to build those plants so quickly? So we've been in business for many, many years, uh, and we're an aggressive growth business, but conservative business, going where we know where to go and, and knowing what we're doing. So we're not going to adventurous routes. And yes, it, it, it is, it is uh, uh, a material uh, investment for, for the group. Um, we basically uh, multiplied by three our capacity for manufacturing masks, and we multiplied by our capex by... 10, 10 time in, in a span of, of a year. So major major uh, investment, but long-term perspective. 
So I would imagine uh, that what it was, was you raised money against the net present value of these uh, long-term contracts that you entered into with the different governments. Is that the case? So it's a mix of very, very different things uh, between our shareholders, between uh, we've got uh, uh, 4 million uh, support from uh, Investissement Québec uh, and just uh, managing the business so that uh, we're not going on adventurous route, routes. And are you going to be warehousing the production over time or are you going to be manufacturing, sending it to the federal government and they're going to have to worry about uh, manufacturing, uh, warehousing it? Yeah, so the idea is to have a short uh, production cycle and deliver right away to the to the government. Um, one of the things that, uh, that we learned during a crisis is that even if there is inventory, the worst thing which can happen is that inventory of products do not turn during a pandemic. So you, you need to have the... the the goods as close as you can from where they are needed, where they, they need to be distributed. So we're shipping our production to the federal government and they take care of distributing it into the provinces and territories based on the needs they see. But once the pandemic is over, you've got this 10-year contract uh, to continue to supply product. If the masks aren't being used, what's the government going to do? Just uh, achieve the inventory turns by throwing it out? So masks are used on a daily basis in our hospitals, dental offices, uh many uh, public institutions so uh, there is a need outside of pandemic for for face masks and 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 uh, 5 type uh, respirators so yes a, a part will be probably warehoused as as a strategic uh, inventory but the part will be used in our uh, health system as well and so you do both the uh, the masks and the uh, n95 respirators is that correct that's correct yeah do you do any other products or just those two so we, we're starting uh, this week uh, pediatric masks, which are masks for uh, children, mainly school, or, and we're developing also production of uh, tie-on masks, which are masks for uh, surgeons, which tie behind the, the head. So we're, we're going through the whole range of products made in Canada. What's the benefit of the tie-on masks? So it's, it's a mask which is more comfortable uh, with a lot of variants because the surgeons need to wear them for a long period of time during a, a complicated surgeries. So you have anti-fog features, you have uh, a lot of different things. And the fact that it doesn't tie behind the, the ears, but on, on, on the head is more comfortable when you need to wear it for several hours. Um, why wouldn't you uh, mass produce those and sell those to consumers as well? So it, it's less convenient. You need to tie it in two places. So it's less convenient that the, uh, the ear loop that you put around your ear and, and you take on and off and on and off. So. The, 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 not the N95 respirators, but the typical masks that people wear. Is there a number of times that people should wear them um, before they uh, have worn out their usefulness or can you use them for a year? So these this masks are single use. They can be worn for several hours until they are either contaminated or wet or, or pre present some, some, some defects, but they should not be reused. The reason why they shouldn't be reused is first of all, they can, they can get contaminated. Second, when you take the mask off, if you don't pay attention, if you don't follow the protocol, if you touch the mask, you become contaminated. So if you put it on your desk, put it back on you, put it back in, on your desk and so on, you're going to contaminate your sur the surface, your hands. So that's why it's recommended to have it as a single-use product. Do you think most people are doing it single-use or are they continuing to reuse and reuse and reuse? I hope they're doing single-use. Well, I think you need to get out or someone needs to get out and educate to people in that regard, because I fear that people are uh, reusing them on several occasions. And so you're right. Education is, is important. Uh, it's new for most of the people how to wear a mask, what is important, what is critical. Uh, and there's a lot of education which should be made around how to wear a mask, how to take off the mask and how to discard the mask without contaminating anybody. I think that... Uh, you know, these global supply chains have really been negatively impacted by COVID-19. Um, I'm not sure if there were other shipments that were actually blocked, but there was certainly a, a big concern about uh, blockages of, uh, of uh, global supply chains. I had uh, the president of uh, the Automobile Parts Manufacturing Association um, uh, on my show, and he said that he thought the global supply chains, um, because of nationalism and uh, and 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 not xenophobia, that's the wrong word, but uh, you know, worry, protectionism, worry about, uh, of, about your own population first, um, uh, was gonna change supply chains, not just in mass, but a whole bunch of different products for uh, a long period of time. 
What do you think about that? Yeah, so uh, I think that... Uh... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. I would tend to agree with this uh, comment that uh, the fact that suppression got so much disrupted in such a short period of time will push people to either develop local supply chain or develop securization of supply, inventory, uh, different uh, diversification, different countries of production or something like that. We see it uh, in the PPE, where majority of the PPE was made in China uh, prior to COVID. So today, it's a much more diversified uh, supply. But you, you also see it on transportation. Uh, today, uh, from goods coming from China, there are still goods coming from China, it's very difficult to get uh, containers to go through the port and, and, and to transport products. So it, it's, it's the product itself, it's the infrastructure, it's the logistics will, which will be impacted. But as you pointed out, uh, masks in Canada are a lot more expensive than masks in China. Uh, what is the differential in cost of goods sold? Any sense? So it, it's, uh, it's a material difference. Now, now, what I can tell you is when you look at, let's say, a long-term five-year or 10-year average of what you need to spend to cover the population, if you look at the pricing, which, which was on during the first half of, uh, of the COVID crisis, you paid for any investment that you need to have in, in Canada or any Western country for that matter. It's not only, I'm not only pointing at Canada, pointing at the US, pointing at, at Europe. It's, uh, it, it's paid off because of the, of the spike, which, which was due to uh, many things. One, the scarcity of the products, which you know, the demand and supply was completely unbalanced. Two, there were a lot of speculation on the market and some people raised prices in a way that was not uh, decent. Were speculators coming in and buying up inventory and then uh, trying to resell it at a higher price? Correct. Really? I hadn't heard that before. That's interesting. Um, did government get in to, uh, to stop that? I, I, I don't know about, about this. Uh, what I know is that uh, you had a lot of products offered uh, and the challenge price is one, but quality of products and, and the security of origin was another issue. That's why have a lot of uh, complaints that you can read in the press that goods purchases do not match the requirements well because they were not good products from, from the get-go really that's interesting um the um the impact of uh, those uh those uh, different purchasing strategies by different uh, uh states it seems like that in canada we didn't have fights between different uh, provinces or different hospitals or different uh, uh, institutions. Um, but in the United States, we heard all these stories about uh, different uh, mayors and different uh, governors competing against each other. Did we handle the purchasing in a different and a far better way in Canada? Or was it a mishmash here too? And we just didn't hear about it. So I, I don't know all the details. Uh, I'm, I can compare uh, what I, from my perspective, what I've seen from uh, governments overall, uh, government like the government of Canada or France uh, took pretty good action to secure access to, to, to PPE and ensure the distribution. So it went through uh, uh, government acquisitions. It went through um, also uh, how to, to, to fluidify the distribution by not uh, nationalizing supply or that was in, in some countries, but just making sure there is a good coordination between what is inventory and where the needs are. So I think the, the, the government in Canada and the government of different provinces did a pretty good job in, in, in trying to fluidify as much as they could to supply. So when you were selling PPE and you entered into a contract with the federal government, 
We, did you have uh, Premier Doug Ford and Jason Kenney uh, competing for some of that supply or were they buying from the federal government? So the, the federal government is uh, buying the products and then redistributing based on, on the needs of the provinces and territories. So we're, we're not involved in that, which, that part. Which, which sounds like it's ex the exact opposite of what happened in the United States, where the federal government wasn't doing the buying and each state had to compete for its own purchases. Yeah, probably, yeah. So the centralized buying strategy makes a lot more sense. So the, I don't know if it's centralized strategy or at least it's a good coordination uh, is helping as long as it's backed by uh, a good understanding of what is needed in, in, in the different provinces and territories. Uh, the, the, the last thing you want is to, buy, to have someone or a government buy and not know what to do with it. But I, I don't think it was the case with Canada. Uh, and it was not the case with the different governments we, we worked with, where there was a lot of fluidity because of good control of where is needed where. I think the, the way our, our health system was, was built was helping as well to go into that, uh, that direction. The um, fast approval of the vaccines seems that the uh, Health Canada in Canada and the FDA in the United States really um, did an incredibly good job of uh, accelerating their review and approval of products. Did they do the same thing with PPE? So there were different phases in PPE. Um, the first phase where we needed masks at any, any cost, not, not from a financial cost, but any, any consideration. In every country, all the rules were, uh, were uh, lifted or, or really made much lighter um, with a probably limited thought process on what's the consequence. Since then, uh, we're back into a, a a strong regulated environment. And, um, and I can say that uh, these things are moving pretty, pretty well. I can give you an example where um, the, the Canada has developed their, its own certification for respirators, which is much, much better than, than many other countries, including uh, the US. And they did it pretty quickly, which uh, I'm pretty happy to see that. It's, it's also part of the uh, sovereignty in terms of PP supply that you can rely on your own regulation rather than relying on, on others' regulation. We uh, have not done nearly as well as Hong Kong, Singapore, um, Australia, New Zealand, uh, etc. in uh, our handling of, uh, of the pandemic. Um, we have uh, been done better than the United States. And uh, some people have said that it's uh, a culture of, uh, of an attitude toward government um, regulation and, uh, and control, where uh, Americans um, made wearing masks a political issue. Um, and uh, in Hong Kong, Singapore, et cetera, if the government told you to wear a mask, you just culturally did what you were told and wore the mask. And, and Canada was maybe somewhere in the middle. Um, do you think that, uh, that we, and, and at the same time, we've had uh, not only, um, you know, mask wearing uh, impact COVID, but the flu has had one of its lowest levels of incidence in ever um, because people were following public health measures and wearing masks and washing their hands and sneezing into their nose, sneezing into their elbow and coughing into their elbow and things like that. Do you think that we should have a culture of wearing masks every fall? So I, I don't know if you can say we should have a culture but will we change our culture? Most probably. I think what uh, the COVID crisis revealed, which was already the case in Asia because of uh, SARS, avian flu, uh, H1N1, the, the habit, the, 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 the culture of wearing a mask is more entrenched in the population. I think that um, it will probably stay to some extent in, in the Western countries, in Canada in, 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 in specific, where the, the, re the relationship of mask protection and other hygiene measures such as washing your hands and, and, and so on will will have an impact on the population which I think is a good thing I think it is a good thing I'm not sure people will wear it every day but in some places like long-term care facilities for an example that have been the real tragedy this past year um, I think there is a real argument to say that we should be uh, doing something dramatically different from a public health standpoint than we've ever dreamt of doing before. Because clearly, uh, we didn't do it right during uh, COVID, but it only raises the issue that, frankly, we've had way too many deaths from the flu or even the common cold in, uh, in, in prior years. 
So, so you're right. Uh, and and uh, if I look at uh, my private life and uh, the people around me, uh, you know, you, you used to have a cold in, in the past. You were coughing your hand or elbow, but you were not wearing a mask. Today, you can't imagine coughing without wearing a mask. And and I hope this this will stay as as, as a change to protect others, because that, that's what it's all about. Uh, Mr. Gilliam, Gilliam Levedieu, the President and Global Chief Operating Officer of Medicom Inc. I thank you very much for joining us tonight and telling us a little bit about your story in regards to uh, scaling up and scaling up so quickly, negotiating a 10-year agreement with the federal government to supply masks and, uh, and helping us get through this pandemic. If, uh, if you wanted to give a message to people as we're faced with this uh, you know, potential variant and a, uh, a huge increase in, uh, in COVID-19 infections. What would you tell the Canadian population right now? Please use all the protective measures that the government is, is recommending. Masks, washing your hands, not gathering. This is, this is the best thing we can do to, 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 to kill this, uh, this pandemic. Well, everyone, you heard it from the CEO of the business, mask up. Everyone mask up. Thank you so much. I really appreciate uh, you uh, telling us about uh, Medicom's story. Thank you. Thank you, Brian, for having me tonight. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. Well, good evening, everyone, and welcome to the Brian Crombie Radio Hour on Saga 960. I've got a, uh, a vaccine story, a vaccine story about COVID-19 for you tonight. I want to introduce you to uh, uh, Madame Nathalie Landry, who is the Executive Vice President of Scientific and Medical Affairs for um, a company in uh, Quebec City um, called Medicago. Um, is that correct, Medicago? That's perfect. And Medicago is a vaccine manufacturer, um, and they've also developed their own COVID-19 uh, vaccine. We haven't heard much about uh, them. They're in phase two clinical trials right now, and they hope to get approval and start distributing it uh, in the summer. Uh, Ms. Uh, Laundrie, thank you so much for joining us. How are you? I'm fine, and you? Very well, thank you. So you're calling us uh, uh, into us uh, from Quebec City, I understand. Yes, that's correct. So our manufacturing facility is based in Quebec City. We have one uh, in North Carolina in US and we're building a, a larger scale manufacturing facility in Quebec uh, City as well. So we're getting prepared to be able to provide a significant number of doses. Excellent. Um, the, uh, we, we hear a lot about you know, the Pfizer and the, uh, the Moderna and the, uh, uh, the AstraZeneca and the J&J. Um, that have got approved so quickly. Why are you behind? So it's a different manufacturing technology. So uh, we produce recombinant protein. So we need a living system to produce the vaccine, contrary to the currently approved vaccine that are more chemical synthesis. So this is why they were a bit faster at producing the first doses uh, for recombinant proteins. That is a more traditional approach. Uh, we're in the front runners, so it's not longer uh, than anybody else using a living system. And what is uh, unique about Medicago is that we use plants as the platform to produce the vaccine. And this is totally unique to uh, uh, our company. And what are the plants that you're using? So they're called Nicotiana Bentamiana, so it's a close relative of, of tobacco. Uh, so it's a cousin of tobacco plants, but not the same as uh, the one used to produce cigarettes. So we use that plants and we, we, uh, we ask the plant to produce a vaccine against a target indication. And what the plant is able to, to do is to produce virus-like particles. So they will be expressing the protein and assembling it in a shape and form that looks like the virus, but it's not infectious cannot replicate, it's not a virus, it looks like a virus. And this type of vaccine is a very efficient vaccine to protect against uh, infectious disease. And you're saying this has been a more uh, typical historic, other than the use of plants, which you do, it's a more uh, uh, typical way of developing vaccines historically? 
Yes, uh, so uh, comparative companies would be Novavax that uh, are in phase three in the US. Sanofi is using, uh, it's a different technology, but it's still a recombinant protein-based approach. And there's many approved vaccines that are based on, on the technology that we call recombinant protein. And if you don't use plants, what would you use to do a recombinant protein well, vaccine? So you could use mammalian cell culture. You can use, uh, in the case of Sanofi, it's insect cell culture. Uh, so there's other living organism you can use. Um, traditionally. Hello, it is Ryan. And I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino. Asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Uh, vaccines were viruses that were inactivated and not really easy to produce for um, the coronaviruses. So this is why we rely uh, mainly on recombinant uh, proteins. In our case, we use plants because plants are the only one to be able to assemble the protein as a virus-like particle. This is another unique aspect of what we have developed. Fascinating. Uh, and uh, the uh, other companies that are developing it with some new methodology, what's that uh, methodology and how is it different from recombinant proteins? So uh, the, the vaccine that are approved are, uh, most of them are uh, mRNA vaccine. So it's the, um, it's the information, the genetic information that is administered as a vaccine and it's the body producing uh, the antigen. So it's totally different, it's chemical. So this is why they're able to scale up relatively quickly because it doesn't involve uh, growing a living organism and getting uh, you know, either the recombinant protein or, or, or something else out of it. So it's totally uh, synthetic. It's a new technology. There was no vaccine approved uh, for mRNA technology until the pandemic. So this is why, uh, you know, like for any vaccine, by the way, we need to closely monitor efficacy and safety uh, over a long period of time. I had understood that the Moderna vaccine was a different methodology than uh, the other ones. Is that true? Well, there, there are uh, differences in the way they package the, the mRNA and administer it. But basically, this is the same principles, uh, if I may say. What does mRNA stand for, please? Messenger uh, RNA, so it's a, a nucleic acid code uh, for, uh, for production of protein. So uh, this is really the genetic information that will uh, tell the cell you need to produce that protein. And uh, will your vaccine need to be super uh, chilled or cooled like uh, some of the vaccines right now? No, it, it doesn't need to be. Uh, co uh, kept at very cold temperature. This is a vaccine that uh, should be kept in a refrigerator two to eight degrees. So typical of uh, any licensed vaccine, except the recent COVID-19 vaccines. And uh, is it one shot or two shots? Two shots. So uh, in general, when you immunize a population that is naive, meaning that they don't have any background immunity against a disease, um, uh, you see really a benefit of getting uh, the second shot. Oh, really? So that this applies to almost any vaccine, not just uh, the COVID-19 vaccine? Think of the pediatric. They never receive a vaccine only once. So they're totally naive. We need to build the immunity against uh, several uh, disease. And in general, they will receive mul multiple shots and a minimum of two, four, uh, most of the vaccine, I would say. 
So I think the numbers, and you may know them better, hopefully do you do know them better, are like the first vaccine, uh, the first uh, shot gets you 70 to 80% effective. And it's the second shot that takes you from the 70, 80% up to this 95%. Um, and, uh, and, and what I understand is some people, in fact, uh, President-elect Joe Biden is thinking about uh, just giving people the first uh, vaccine so they can distribute it more widely and get everyone up to that 75 to 80%. What do you think? Well, uh, it depends on the study you look at. So if you look, if you, if you dig into the study performed by Pfizer, uh, the efficacy after a, a single dose was more in the 50% than the 70%. And, and, and there was no information provided um, uh, according to uh, age range, because as you know, we want to immunize adults and the elderly. And, and I don't know the specifics of what is the efficacy after a single dose in adults compared to the elderly. And, and I'm sure others have access to privileged information and know that I haven't seen these data, but, but there's some level of protection after one dose, that's for sure. But it's not the 94, 95% uh, that were reported uh, in, in the press. This was coming after the second uh, administration. So I'm sure that uh, people uh, analyze those data very carefully and make uh, uh, some analysis with regards, is it better to have more people protected in the zone of 50 to 70% than having half of them fully protected? So I think that was the choice that was made uh, by uh, those groups. And what do you recommend? Well, we recommend a two-dose uh, approach. Uh, of course, we will be monitoring what is the efficacy after the first dose. But uh, we really see a very good immune response after the second dose. So until we get efficacy data, our proposed regimen is a two-dose. We're chatting tonight uh, with uh, um, uh, Ms. Natalie, Natalie Laundry, the Executive Vice President of Scientific and Medical Affairs for Medicago, who's developing a vaccine for COVID-19. We're going to take a break and come back more with uh, Natalie in just a minute. Stream us live at saga960am.ca. Welcome back to the Brian Crumby Radio Hour, Saga 960. We're chatting with uh, Madame Nathalie Landry, who is the Executive Vice President of Scientific and Medical Affairs for uh, Medicago, uh, a company uh, that's got a manufacturing plant uh, in Quebec City. Um, and is developing a vaccine for COVID-19. Um, uh, Ms. Uh, Ms. Uh, uh, Landry, you said that um, you were in phase two. Can you describe to us phase one, phase two, phase three, what the process is to get a vaccine uh, through the clinical trial process and submit it to, to Health Canada for approval? So in phase one in general, you're screening what would be the right dosage for the vaccine uh, in, in a limited uh, group of people. So this is what we have done in phase one. We have tested different level, dose level and different type of adjuvant. And in phase two, you confirm that uh, your selected dose is safe and immunogenic in more people and including elderly and other target populations. So this is what is currently ongoing. When you have your data for phase two, you go to the last step, that is a phase three. And the objective of the phase three is to demonstrate efficacy and safety of the product. So we're not looking at immune response anymore. We're looking if the vaccine can protect against uh, the disease. And those studies are, of, uh, you enroll a lot of people. In our case, we're talking about 30,000 people will be enrolled in our study. And, and in order to meet that target enrollment, this is, also a global study will be conducted in up to 11 countries around the world. And how many so, people do you have in your phase two clinical trial? Uh, it's 900 uh, people we're targeting to enroll. So it's another scale in terms of, of enrollment. Um, that's, uh, and, and that's the last, the phase three is the last step when you have proven that your vaccine is safe and effective then you, sum, you submit your dossier to the regulatory authorities and you get approval. Um, your phase two will be completed when? 
Uh, it's staggered enrollment, so the adults are, are completed. So we're expecting to move into phase three in that population uh, shortly. Uh, and then uh, a few weeks later will be the elderly uh, population. So it's as per plan. Uh, so we're, we're uh, hopeful that uh, we will be able to enroll those 30,000 relatively quickly and get the demonstration uh, during the spring period and, and then proceed with regulatory approval. Now, is the phase three clinical trial uh, a randomized clinical trial where you have some people that get the vaccine and some people that don't get the vaccine? This is the only way we have to show efficacy of the vaccine, so you're right. Uh, that being said, uh, we're planning uh, for a, a moment in the trial where once we have demonstrated the efficacy of the vaccine and we get approval for the vaccine, each placebo subject will receive the vaccine. But for a certain period of time, you have two groups, people who are vaccinated and people who are not vaccinated. And this is the way uh, we can demonstrate efficacy. Tell me, you're the, the executive vice president of scientific and medical affairs. What, what is the ethical situation in regards to, you know, half of your 30,000 people, so 15,000 people are going to get a vaccine, are going to get a shot, but they're not going to know whether they're, they're vaccinated or not. And, uh, and so they could get COVID and die. And, and in fact, if there was any better way to, to show the efficacy of the vaccine and still get regulatory approval, we would contemplate that. But according to the way the vac we can get approval of the vaccine and be able to administer it to the general population, this is a rule that has been set up. So if you look for the approved vaccine, that was the same rule. They did uh, some trials were 42,000 subjects and we're looking for disease, uh, of course. And if there's any disease, of course, the subject will be followed until resolution. We don't want anybody to die. But according to the regulatory requirement, we need to demonstrate efficacy. And so far, there's no other way to demonstrate efficacy. And effectively, you really need to get some of the people in the placebo arm to be infected. Otherwise, you won't prove that your arm with the vaccine is actually better. So you need to get some of them infected. Yeah, well, we, we, we need, yes. Yeah. So uh, we, we, we want the vaccine to protect against the disease. And there's a lot of people enrolled in the study. They're not all, all the cases, they don't die, to be, to be frank. It's not everybody who is infected by COVID who will die, but we cannot guarantee either. But that's, that's the rule. So eventually when there will be uh, correlates of protection, and correlates of protection means a measurement, something you can measure in, in the blood that will tell if you're protected or not. When that will be available, that will be a way to get additional vaccine approved. But we're probably at least a year from having those correlates being established. So meanwhile, the only way to demonstrate that you have a safe and effective vaccine is to demonstrate it. It seems that... Uh... In some of these trials, we almost had a sense of the statistics, um, the efficacy during the trial. And I always thought that with these trials, you weren't allowed to take a look at the, the results till the end. What's, uh, are you gonna be able to um, you know, break the blinds and take a look at the, uh, the efficacy during the trial and maybe give it to others for compassionate use reasons as the trial is ongoing? That's a very good question. So there's statistical analysis. And in our case, uh, there's a number of cases we need According to our expectation of the target efficacy, we will have enough power to demonstrate to the regulators that, you know, this vaccine is effective. So it's a matter of enrolling a lot of people and getting a few cases in your study. This is where you look. When you have these cases, you look at your efficacy. If you plan correctly, uh, you have enough data. And this is, as I was referring to a moment where we will be in the position to offer the vaccine to the placebo recipient. But there's gonna be a few weeks during which everybody wouldn't, will not know if they have received the vaccine and the placebo. And once we will have accumulated 
enough cases according to our calculation, this is where we will be able to look at the results. Um, there has been a bunch of uh, questions about uh, the vaccine that some people haven't been able to answer. In fact, uh, Tony Fauci, the, the head of uh, the NIH in the United States, hasn't been able to, to answer. And I wonder if you have a point of view. You know, one of the questions that they get asked often is, if you get the vaccine, can you still catch the virus and transmit it to someone else, even if you don't get sick? This is a very good question. And again, um, I'm sure everybody will appreciate the logistic of, of monitoring for the disease. So we need to call the study subject on a regular basis, make sure if they have any symptoms, because this is how you think you, you can know that you have been infected. But to make sure that you can prevent shedding you need to monitor, monitor those subjects on a daily basis for a long period of time. And, and this is, this is uh, in terms of log logistics, very, very complex. So uh, I don't think that there's a lot of data uh, showing if the vaccine uh, the vaccine will prove Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions, 18 plus. Thank you to develop the disease. This is what it is designed for. This is what the efficacy data are supporting. So you have 95% efficacy, meaning you will not get the disease. Will that prevent you of acquiring the virus and, and, and you know, you won't develop the disease, but you will have some still a virus replicating for a short period of time and you could infect others. Uh, I haven't seen data um, and, and, and we, I'm not sure that we have a clear answer to that question yet. But logically, if, if you're exposed to the virus and it goes into your respiratory system and, uh, and um, you know, right now it would appear that people can have the virus and they don't develop the disease or they don't develop symptoms for a week or two. Um, the incubation time period seems to be a long period of time. If you've got um, antibodies that the vaccines developed that are going to get rid of the, the disease or not allow you to, uh, to, um, to get the disease that are gonna combat the disease, by definition, don't you have that virus within you for a while before it's killed? before it's developed from a, the virus inside For of you? For a few days, and you're right. So the vaccine uh, induces an immune response that will, once you're infected, the immune response will take care of what will take control, will eliminate the virus, will eliminate the infected cells, but this is not a matter of a few seconds. So there could be, some viral replication for for a few days. Is it enough to infect someone? I think it's your question. Yes. Uh, are we are we controlling? Are we sure that during that short period of time when your immune system is combating, fighting the virus and clearing the virus from your body, is there a chance that uh, you can still infect someone? I, I'm not sure that we have that answer. Technically, the risk should be much lower than if you don't have an immune response and the virus is simply amplifying while your immune system is trying to control. If you already have an immune response, technically, that should be way better than not, being, uh, not having an immune response. But to which extent? I don't know. I've heard that uh, this isn't, uh, the vaccine hasn't been tested in uh, pregnant females. Um, why? It's, it's always uh, the last target population that is, that is being evaluated because that requires significant preclinical testing. Uh, those are specialty uh, evaluation to make sure that there's no risk for uh, um, uh, the baby. So you need to complete all these preclinical studies and accumulate safety information in adults 
before starting to uh, evaluate the vaccine uh, in pregnant women. So it's, it's a matter of time it just to complete all that evaluation at the preclinical uh, level. So if you think you're going to be approved uh, in the summertime uh, for uh, regular adults, uh, when is seniors, children, and pregnant females uh, going to be approved, studied and approved? So our goal is to have adults and seniors approved at the same time. And, and at that time, we will uh, start evaluating the vaccine in the pediatric population and pregnant women. Uh, I don't see that uh, being uh, an additional uh, addition to our label before end of the year. In the United States um, and in Canada, we've heard about big purchases by the federal governments of uh, at-risk um, vaccine development. Have you successfully negotiated uh, some sales already? Yes, with the Canadian uh, government. So they have a secure supply to up to 76 million doses. So we have a commitment with the Canadian uh, government to start delivering doses uh, by the end of this year. And this is why uh, our timelines are critical and we want this uh, product to be approved uh, during summer because uh, Canada has reserved doses uh, for our vaccine upon regulatory approval. We've heard a lot of controversy about uh, different nations wanting to keep their own vaccine production uh, and PPE production for themselves and, uh, and, and issues in regards to global supply chains. Um, do you think that that's a risk? And is that one of the reasons why the, the federal government, uh, the Canadian federal government should be buying from a Canadian company? Well, uh, we, we have seen that uh, it's, uh, it's always an asset to, um, to have vaccine capacity in, in, in your country so that it's a way to secure uh, the supply. Uh, so this is certainly a, an asset. Um, and, and I agree with you, the global supply uh, is something um, that is beyond the control of people producing uh, those vaccines. Uh, fortunately, there's a, a group named COVAX led by WHO that is uh, partnering with the countries who have access to vaccine and could have excess vaccine doses available to make sure that they are uh, centralized and eventually redistributed to, to each country. Uh, but then again, um, uh, it's, a, it's a matter of, of being able to negotiate with the local supplier versus relying on, on others. So some have been more successful than others. This uh, new variant that uh, has really, you know, skyrocketed in uh, in uh, the UK and Brazil, um, and it looks like it's coming to Canada. Will uh, all vaccines? Will your vaccine be effective against it? We're uh, evaluating that right now. So we're we're looking if the immune response induced by the vaccine could recognize those variants. I don't have the data yet. Uh, according to, to uh, what is in the literature, it seems that for the UK variant, uh, it should be okay. For the others, well, uh, they have more mutation at critical spot on the virus. So uh, it is to be demonstrated. Um, hopefully it, it's going to be uh, okay, but uh, the data are not available yet. I heard one um, infectious disease expert say that he thought COVID-19 was going to be with us forever that it might come back every season and that uh, it would mutate uh, by definition. And so we may have to have a new COVID-19 vaccination every year or second year, just like the flu shot. What do you think about that? Well, uh, the coronavirus is of the same type and than influenza. So it's a, a virus that is known to mutate. And I think this is clearly what we're looking, we're seeing with the these emerging mutants, whether it's the UK strain or from South Africa or Brazil. So the, 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 the virus circulates and this is while it's circulating that it's, it, it will start to mutate. This is uh, the way um, it, it will evolve. And therefore uh, to the question, is this, uh, are coronaviruses with us for a long time? I think the answer is clearly yes. With regards to uh, the need to have a booster shot, I think it's, it's fair to say that it's highly probable that we will need eventually a booster shot because the, the virus will have mutated. So the uh, previous vaccine will be 
much less effective. Uh, the frequency, we don't know. Uh, we don't know uh, because we don't know um, um, the current vaccine, they will protect on, against those variants. We don't know that and for how long. So we need to accumulate these data to really determine the frequency of, of booster shot. And this is uh, what the community, the scientific community is looking at. And, 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 and I think I, I agree with the fact that coronaviruses are here to stay. Um, they will mutate. Will the vaccine be effective? It's an unknown. And this is why we need uh, the manufacturing capacity for a coronavirus uh, vaccine to be maintained. There's a bunch of people that are anti-vaxxers that don't believe in it, believe that there's some conspiracy with Bill Gates or I don't know who else to do something. What do you tell them? I would tell them that uh, the vaccine, they save uh, thousands and thousands of lives and the life expectancy in, in children, for example, is way better than it was before vaccination. So uh, really, um, you know, we, we're um, healthcare professional and, and we want to, 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 to participate to, to eradicate this pandemic or get it under control. And, and, and really there's no time for conspiracy <laughs> whatsoever. So we produce a vaccine uh, for the health of people and, and, and clearly vaccine have been proven to be very useful over uh, decades and centuries and they're saving lives. So I would encourage, and you know, the, the, the amount of data that we need to provide to regulators before the vaccine is approved. And even when it's approved, we constantly monitor for any safety signal or whatsoever. So I think uh, the general population should really trust uh, the vaccine that are getting licensed and should uh, use them according to uh, the recommendation by the different governments. Some of these anti-vaxxers think that uh, vaccinations cause, um, I don't know what it is, Asperger's or something like that in, uh, in, in kids and teenagers. Is there any analysis of that? Any proof of that? Well, there's more proof that, that they cannot induce such a reaction. And, and, and of course, this is something that you administer in one body, you know, and, and the risk is very, very, very low for any um, unwanted side effect. Um, Asperger and, and, and autism are not proven side effect of vaccination at all. So uh, the, there's more literature proving that it's not the case than uh, data demonstrating that it could be. If uh, you were the Minister of Health or the head of public health uh, for Canada um, and uh, you announced uh, your vaccination, what would you be telling everybody? Please get the vaccine. It's a good way to, to protect yourself. And, and, you know, while you're getting your, 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 it's not because you get your first dose that you should uh, stop wearing masks and practice social, social distancing because uh, a first dose don't, doesn't, don't get you up to the 95% uh, efficacy. So we still need to have good measure in place, but I would certainly encourage uh, people to go to the vaccination clinic and get their shot. Uh, this is how we will get to more, more people being protected and we can go back to kind of normal. You're the head of um, medical and scientific affairs. What keeps you up at night? What are you worried about? <laughs> the tight timelines and the so many things we need to do to make sure that we do the right thing, we have the right data and we're doing it in time. Uh, so um, uh, Medicago is, is close to um, uh, 500 employees in Canada and in the US. Uh, so it's a small group compared to, for example, a Pfizer or even a Moderna, there's a few thousand people in there. So we're a small team, we're dedicated and there's so many things to be done because normally a vaccine will require you know, five to eight years before getting uh, to the market. We do everything within one year. So there's many things being done in parallel. So everybody's working, 
you know, very long hours um, and, and really um, we're concentrated on our job. And, and what keeps me awake at, at night is, is seeing that we still have that second wave that is not under control. And the sooner we'll have the vaccine uh, being deployed and enough vaccine, um, the, the, the fast, <laughs> faster we will go back to uh, normal life. So this is uh, the motivation for everybody at Medicago. Um, thank you so much for joining us. And uh, given your challenge and the challenge we are all faced, with COVID-19, um, I wish you uh, the best of luck and speed in achieving those milestones. Uh, Madame Natalia, Nathalie, Nathalie, Nathalie Landry, the Executive Vice President of Scientific and Medical Affairs for Medicago. Thank you so much for joining us and telling us about your vaccine development. My pleasure. And uh, if I could just echo, um, get the vaccine, but also don't stop wearing that mask and don't stop physically distancing. Stay socially close, but physically distant and wash your hands. Thanks so much, everybody. Good night. No radio? No problem. Stream us live on saga960am.ca. With everything you have on your plate, earning your degree online seems impossible. But at Grand Canyon University, we specialize in helping you fit a master's degree in business into your busy day. Your graduation team, led by your own GCU counselor, provides you with the personal support you need to succeed. Achieve your goals with a plan and team behind you. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Visit gcu.edu.